Welcome back, fuck demons, to Sex News with Ray. Today's guest is Jasper, who is going to do an excellent job introducing themselves for us today. Jasper, take it away. Hello, hello. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, my name is Jasper. I am an executive director, newly minted at a community sexual health clinic. Uh, I continue my work as like a sex educator, artist, organizer. I do a lot of peer-based mental health counseling, uh, and my praxis is really at the intersections of like liberated kinship ecologies and reimagining collective and mutual care networks within and also beyond like two SLGBTQIA communities. Uh, I'm all here for the queer agenda and how we can work better together. Um, my work kind of like tries to disrupt this like pathologizing and inaccessible care models and instead try to invite new ways of relating through supporting each other um, and as well as connecting to the land and recognizing the land itself and doing so through the uses of the erotic and body sexualities and of course pleasure because why else would we incarnate in these bodies uh in the spirit of collective healing i really believe that by building better and more nuanced relationships of understanding accountability pleasure and repair within ourselves our bodies and our connections to both the human and the more than human world we can actually create that brighter more pleasurable hedonistic thriving future that we all want to see no one wants to hear their sex educator say the word hedonistic when you work in a school so it must be fun working with adults <laughs> <laughs> it is it is <laughs> can you explain a little bit more about how our care models are inaccessible and how what your work does disrupts that Oh, gosh, so they're inaccessible for so many reasons and in so many ways. Not for reasons that make sense, um, but mostly ones that have been kind of um, ingrained in the institutions of care uh, through a lot of legacies of hierarchical, hierarchical access, right? So um, the care models that exist now, especially around allopathic medicine, are really predicated on like who can access them using like white, cis, affluent bodies as like the basis for health uh, and anything that kind of derives from a productive white cis hetero person uh, as some sort of like detraction or deviation from that which is like you know perverts queers and people who care about each other uh, we are all considered deviants under that um, and so I kind of try to address the fact that a lot of the folks that I work with can't access psychotherapy because they either can't afford it or they um, access different psychotherapy or different modes of healthcare and they experience discrimination, they experience racism, they experience explicit transphobia. Um, myself, when I was trying to access care, uh, it took me a number of years to find a doctor who was willing to work with me to support my transition. And when I finally did, they didn't do any preliminary blood work, any of their due diligence. They gave me some medications that I did not anticipate. And then I realized uh, with the help of some nurse friends that um, those medications would have actually made me completely sterile within six months. And that had not been communicated. So okay. as you can yeah. imagine, I was quite furious. Um, and this is just like the, the legacy of especially trans healthcare, um, but also folks who experience, you know, racism, who experience uh, ableism, who experience all of these intersections of oppression and discrimination within the communities. When you go into the healthcare model, you see that those barriers become exacerbated. Um, yeah, yeah, I remember learning about how uh, when doctors are learning about how to detect a rash or what an STI looks like, we only know what that looks like on white bodies. So what does yeah. a rash look like on a body of color looks completely different. And so there's all these other examples of um, there's no there's no good diagnostic tools if you're not a white bodied person. So yeah, if you are exactly. not a white bodied person, that's going to be difficult for you to get the the kind of care that you need without you advocating a lot harder for yourself. 
Absolutely. Yeah. And so I kind of uh, worked with my communities to create kind of more community based level responses to some of those issues and to make sure that people had other folks that they could call on to support them, even to like advocate with their healthcare providers. Uh, for example, I started having like symptoms of a heart attack when I was like, like a year or two into my transition when I was on like a, a quite high dose. And so I texted my sister, who's a paramedic, and I was like, oh, I don't really know what symptoms I should be looking for because men have different symptoms. Women have different symptoms. I have a body full of testosterone, but also other body parts. So I'm not really sure what I should be looking for here. Uh, so she called me some names and told me to go to the hospital. <laughs> so when I went to the ER, they also had no idea. And they just like wrote it off as like a side effect of the testosterone. Um, and it wasn't until I actually brought in an advocate uh, who was a nurse at the time who really went to bat for me that I was actually like addressed and seen in an appropriate way. So Right. And the other thing is, oh, it's just a side effect. It's like, okay, well, who's actually recording these as side yeah. effects then? Right? Like, okay, so if it's just a side effect, are you recording this information for future people who are going to be experiencing this kind of, of side effect? Or is this just like a, oh, we don't know. So it's a side effect. Right. Which and is- do you treat cisgender men who take testosterone the same way? Yeah. Okay. (laughs) Well, congrats on your new um, uh, executive director role. Thank you. Um, That's very exciting. I see you're wearing a button up shirt, which means you're in (laughs) an office and not working from home today. It's true. It's true. Yeah. (laughs) That's thrilling. Yeah. It's been a a wild ride in terms of how it came to be. Uh, There were folks who were really invested in us not continuing to house the Trans Health Clinic. And through a wild turn of events, we were able to get it back. So it feels victorious and righteous and exciting. So well, I appreciate I'm excited that. to have you here because trans issues are a hot topic everywhere. Oh, that's um, true. <laughs> as you know, and I might have more questions after, but for now, we're going to get into the article of the day. So the article is called Texas School District Approves Policy Banning Classroom Discussions of Race and Gender and Restricts Books and Pronoun Use. Now, obviously, we are both in Canada. We are not in Texas, but a lot of politics south of the border end up affecting the cultural climate of of Canada. So this is from thehill.com. I have no idea what kind of publication this is. I don't know how trustworthy they are, but that's where it's from. And this was published (laughs) August 23rd, 2022. And their at-a-glance summary says the Grapevine Colleyville Independent School District Board voted 4-3 on Monday to implement a slate of new policies that restrict how educators may teach their students about race, sexual orientation, and gender identity, and allows school staff to misgender transgender students who are also barred from using restrooms consistent with their gender identity. The new policies also allow school board members and parents to challenge library materials and banned books will not be reconsidered for at least a decade. Those in favor of the changes claim they are necessary to shield young students from indoctrination, while others have said the new policies amount to censorship. Oh my, I'm sorry, I have to pause myself here. As if we're not already indoctrinating our students in schools in different ways and haven't been for, like, what else is school but not other like than this? This isn't the, this is not okay indoctrination. Yeah. You know, this we're is not teach our usual people, indoctrination. Yeah, we need to teach people to sit still and, and, you know, achieve grades for the sake of achieving grades and, yeah. you know, be productive cogs in the wheel. That's not yeah. indoctrination. But we got to make sure that your worth is tied to your productivity because otherwise, you might mm-hmm. get some weird ideas. Yeah. Like, you know, we're going to continue to indoctrinate people to understand that our history is an exclusively white colonialist history. That's a fine indoctrination. But now yeah. that we're trying to unlearn that. And with just a few, know. a few exceptions that have been really scrubbed of any sort of like radical politic. We'll remember mm-hmm. them now that we, uh, that the state killed them. Yeah. And also <laughs> while we're indoctrinating people, we're going to only read books with the main characters as boys, because as we know, boys won't read a book about a girl, but girls can read about anyone. 
and, yeah. and feel like that and feel like they identify with them. So we're just going to pick one book every four years that has a main character that's a woman and we'll never read Harry Potter in school. It's going to be fine. Great. White cis men doing boring things are the like the normal human, right? Default mm-hmm. human being, right? D- yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that's exactly. It's not even like white cis men doing interesting things. You're right. White cis yeah. men doing boring things. That's yeah. yeah. Okay. Boring thing with lots of other people's money. Great. Yeah. Thanks. Okay. Cool. That's it. That's my that's my lefty rant for. There's going to be more. There's going to be more. Okay. (laughs) I should add that like sometimes when I hear other people talk, I'm like, oh, am I centrist? And then I read shit like this, and I'm like, "Mm, if I'm centrist, it's definitely center left. It's definitely left. (laughs) Okay. Trustees that had backed the update on Monday said the changes were driven by an uptick in questionable material in school libraries, and said the new guidelines would help push out. Overt nefarious infiltration of social and cultural propaganda, the Dallas Morning (laughs) News reported. Educators of students younger than the fifth grade are also prohibited from engaging in classroom instruction related to sexual orientation, gender identity, and race. According to one of the policies adopted Monday, including critical race theory and other systemic discrimination ideologies. Wow, so maybe they will stop talking about boring white men if they can't talk about gender or race. We both know that's not true. Um, (laughs) Another policy passed Monday prevents transgender students from using the restroom or changing facility consistent with their gender identity. And another asks that district staff not promote, require, or encourage the use of a student's or teacher's pronouns that are inconsistent with their sex assigned at birth. The policies are also limit which library books are available to students of all grade levels and creates a separate parental consent area for titles that are pervasively vulgar or obscene or that promote subject matter that has been prohibited by law or the school district. This is also one of those laws that ends up getting Mouse, that Holocaust book, um, banned from high schools Mm because nobody's reading Mouse in fifth grade. They're reading it in like eighth, ninth grade and like. Mm -hmm. Oh, no, it shows an accurate depiction of the Holocaust. We can't have people see that. Um, Anyway, so that is what's happening in Texas. And yet I am still getting asked by people at random uh, shivas and funerals, um, you know, principals of schools. This is an actual thing that happened to me. I was at my aunt's shiva and one of my cousin's friends is the principal of a school in Hamilton, Ontario. And he asked me something like, well, what do you think about teaching, you know, pronouns in school in elementary school like you're a sex educator and i was like we already teach pronouns in school when we call people boy and girl and associate certain certain things with that and even when we do our best to try and raise people thinking boys and girls are equal you will still have teachers occasionally say things like oh i need three strong boys to lift these chairs when before puberty everyone has the same level of strength and body type and things like that so Anyway, so my question for you is now that you know this and you understand that this is a culture of indoctrination, can you please tell me as the executive director of a community sexual health organization, what is the leftist gay agenda here? What is your indoctrination goal? (laughs) What is my indoctrination goal? What is my gay agenda? (laughs) I mean, specific to this, I don't think that there is one. You know, the reality is that when we're talking about educating children about the various ways that people can be and are and that children be and are, um, the goal is to like make them see themselves reflected and make them know that there is a future for themselves, right? Even still with contemporary studies on LGBTQ youth across, you know, Turtle Island, we're seeing that as much as things have, you know, quote unquote, got better, people feel more accepted, people more feel more able to come out. A lot of folks still don't see a future for themselves, right? They still don't think that they will live long enough to like see themselves become adults or elders and recognizing that because of the impacts of the HIV and AIDS epidemic, we lost a lot of our elders, right? So we don't have the same amount of people to look towards. And so when we're talking about ways to actually disseminate this information and allow children to know what their options are and to allow youth to know what their options are, it says that you 
can feel whatever way that you feel and still have a future, still have a viable and beautiful and loving future for yourself, as opposed to, you know, these ways that you're already feeling and already know yourself to be are this point of shame that needs to be like pushed away, um, needs to be stuffed down and like actually creates a safety liability for you or your family, depending on the like ramifications of it. And so my goal, my leftist agenda and my like indoctrination goal is to have people, all people of all ages, children, youth, everybody to know what options are available, to know that who, however they are is how they are meant to be and that it's okay. Um, and that my goal is to have children who grow up to be trans adults as opposed to trans children who don't get a chance to grow up at all. There is a huge moral panic happening right now with young people transitioning too early in their opinion or young people being put on hormone blockers that could, you know, before they have a chance to decide that they're trans. And there's this huge moral panic around um, young people trying to fit in and then being exposed to this leftist liberal indoctrination ideology and determining that they're trans and then being put on these these hormone blockers and okay but what if they detransition when they're older because we've never had access to medicine like this before and this is i once again a primarily american concern because our healthcare system works very different than ours does mm-hmm. because i know in our system if you think that this is something you want to do there's specialized hospitals that a kid can go to and they're given a team of professionals and psychologists theoretically that sounds mm-hmm. like that wasn't your experience at the time of your transition <laughs> um so I don't know. What do you think? Is there any do you from what you've seen in the communities that you work in? Is there any truth to this moral panic? Yeah. And I want to stay by stating that I'm like, I'm not a physician. I'm not a medical doctor. And so obviously I can't comment to any extent on the uh, the nuance of like puberty blockers and different medications that are used. But we do know that like the the long term impacts of using puberty blockers, especially for like an acute period of time, they're the risk factors are quite low, if not non-existent. Um, many people have chosen to partake and use puberty blockers or hormone blockers uh, as they kind of approach that puberty age uh, to kind of stave off some of those changes while they make a decision with their family, with their therapist, with their care team about what they would like to see and how they'd like to move forward. Um, and we see that folks who opt to go off of those kind of pursue their regular, regularly scheduled puberty without issue. Um, so we don't see a lot of adverse effects. It doesn't fr- affect fertility levels. It doesn't, the, the long-term concerns, especially around like family planning, uh, the ability to conceive are ungrounded, frankly. Um, but we do see a lot of the benefit, right? Youth who are able to access these interventions. One, we see like the mental health outcomes are much better, much stronger, especially when they do have a supportive family around them. Um, and it gives people the opportunity to potentially not have to go through the wrong puberty, right? And so we have a lot of trans folks who went through their initial puberty, got all of these secondary sex characteristics, and now have to go through this like very invasive and like intensive process to kind of remedy that to feel more at home in their bodies. And so if we have the opportunity to have folks not necessarily have to go through that, that limits the amount of like surgeries and medical interventions that they might have to pursue in the future, uh, and really reduces the like the negative mental health implications of having to go through so, so much of something that is not in alignment with who you are or how you feel in your body. Yeah. When I see moral panics like this talking about, you know, oh, are we ruining kids' fertility? Are we, are, do they not have a choice for themselves? I like to compare it to other things in society that affect an equal percentage of the population. And so when I look at things like that, I look at who's protecting our uh, pre-puberty gymnasts who, you know, are at, like working out at such a high intense level that they don't get a period, their puberty is delayed, their bodies are completely changed for the rest of their lives. Um, I know people who compete did competitive gymnastics and then stopped when they were in high school and hit puberty then. 
Mm-hmm. Right. And mm-hmm. things like that. And so there's this huge uh, concern for these young people and all these medical interventions happening for them without actually looking at other places in society that we are currently treating people the same. Mm-hmm. And we don't care about them. So then the question becomes, well, why do we care so much about this group, but not that group? Exactly. And I think that, like, you know, a lot of it comes down because uh, so much of our culture is really predicated on this, like, binary idea of sex and gender. Right. It's like one of the, like, great divisions in our culture uh, and a division of power. Which, you know, the more that we can maintain that, the more that we like keep people separated and people are unable to like build the kind of solidarity that arguably they should be. (laughs) And trans people really threaten that, right? This idea that like those those categories are not as static as, you know, modernity would have you believe. And so if we're able to kind of crack that open, that creates a bit of a threat. And so folks kind of like respond to that in a more intense way, because, again, like like you were saying, there are a lot of things that are contributing to this. The amount of like hormones, especially in some of our like dairy and milk products and a lot of our like animal products depending on whether you consume them they have like quite elevated levels of different hormones which are changing like how early people are getting their periods like how early people are entering puberty um, and have really shifted the like age range of when we can anticipate that and that has nothing to do with trans healthcare. and similarly like a lot of youth are on different kinds of birth control which we also know like wreck a lot of havoc on a body um, Mm -hmm. in some really difficult ways but that that is not given the same amount of attention as these puberty blockers which again have like very little long-term impacts um, and the risk factors are quite low and even with hormone replacement therapy um, as much as a lot of those uh, impacts are not reversible the rates of detransition are so low um, and the rates of like considerable uh, improvement in quality of life from being able to access these treatments is quite high and i would argue an effective and necessarily um, accessible treatment yeah. Have you, I'm sure you've heard of the, that bullshit documentary, What is a Woman? Ugh. Have you heard of it? Did you watch it? I had someone I be like, <laughs> okay, I, I did. I was with someone who was like, oh, I want to, I want to like hear what this person has to say. Not because I believe in what they're saying. I just, I'm interested. And mm-hmm. I watched it with them and we had to pause after every segment for me to be like, are you fucking kidding me? And uh... then I Googled things because um, <laughs> I was like, this is one of those documentaries that, oh my God, it seems so great, but it's it's made by an organization that wants to promote a certain idea. And it's made by a guy who's trying to piss people off. And you can tell in every single second because the only trans person he interviews is someone who is not trans. They were a, a woman who was convinced that they were trans by the gender binary. Like, right, that rigid gender binary. Like, oh, you must be a man because you like to be in control in your office. And you must be a man because you're very dominant in the workplace. And, like, was told by all these people that you must be a man. And then this woman, as an adult, was convinced, as an adult, was convinced that she was a man. Went through surgery, had some complications, and now wants to detransition, but now has to live their life as a man. And I'm like, that's not a trans person. Yeah. That's someone who was, you know, so this is what they're talking about, that leftist indoctrination. That's the fear that we're going to convince people. And I'm like, that woman wasn't convinced by trans people that she was trans that woman was convinced by a rigid gender binary (laughs) yeah saying that this is what it means to be a man or a woman and you you have all of these traits that are so masculine therefore you must be a man like i genuinely think that if we were were all raised to see ourselves as non-binary most of us would just continue to identify as non-binary because we've just what is a woman is well i've been told i'm a woman my whole life so that's probably what a woman is and i've never i don't really care Right. But mm-hmm. if everyone has raised their whole lives, you're non-binary. And so these are you're going to discover your own personality traits and maybe they're more this or maybe they're more that. But like it's not ascribed to your genitals. I think genuinely more people just continue to be non-binary for the sheer. That's what they're used to. Yeah. That's what's expected. 
and and, it can, and this like essentialism really contributes to so much of the hysteria, especially around like trans women, right? Like women with dicks, which like not all trans women have them, but some of them do. And that contributes to a lot of the like transphobic violence that we see the equation of like men, straight men who decide to date trans women as being like allegedly gay. And that's where we see a lot of the like homophobic violence and partner violence come through, which like, again, if we all kind of started with this assumption that like you're just a person and you will like have whatever characteristics come through, then we stop policing some of those boundaries and we allow people to really like come into their fullness. Yeah. Uh, I think anyone watching a documentary on trans issues or listening to the debate, like if you want to hear someone who's right wing talk about trans issues, listen to a right wing trans person, you know, like their, their, their opinions might not be um, what you want or what you care, but like, why would you watch a documentary that not once speaks to an actual trans person? (laughs) Like there are people who are more conservative leaning and more politically conservative who are trans, who are happy to talk about all of these issues from a conservative perspective. Mm -hmm. And yet this person, like this guy didn't interview any of them in this documentary. And the people he did interview after a quick Google search, you would find out that he was really only revealing half truths. Right. Mm. Like he interviews this one guy who's like, I was arrested and imprisoned for misgendering my child. And I'm like, uh, no, you were arrested for violating a court order after you kept doxing your child publicly. Like, it's one of those things where I'm like, Very it wasn't different. for mis. It might have mm. been rooted in you not affirming your child's gender. That might have been what it was originally rooted in. But you mm-hmm. you went to court over it and you lost. Mm-hmm. And and now you've been violating court orders. That is not the same as going to jail for misgendering your child. But the way mm-hmm. they present it is things like that. So I'm just, if anyone is interested in learning about this, I would say, like, listen to trans voices. You can find a trans voice from multiple sides of the political debate. Don't, and, like, you know, Google things. Like, yeah. literally just, like, if someone says something, don't take it at face value. And I found this out. But studies have shown that, um, like, there was one study conducted that found that even if you think something is bullshit or you know it's bullshit... If you hear a report on it or someone says something with authority, your brain processes that. And two weeks later, you believe it's true. Mm-hmm. So someone conducted a study on um, is exercise bad for you? So they had this group basically sit down and watch this presentation. Before the presentation, they said, is exercise good for your lungs or bad for your lungs? And everyone's like, it's good for your lungs. And then half the group watched this presentation on um, exercise is bad for your lungs. And then the other half did not get that presentation. Um, mm-hmm. And they even started by saying this presentation is is you know not true um and at the end of it they interviewed the people again you know do you think exercise is bad for your lungs and they're like no of course it's good for your lungs two weeks later all the people who've seen that presentation were like you know exercise is bad for your lungs oh <laughs> god that's yeah <laughs> so that's why that's why i'm like okay if you want to have these if you want to discuss the moral panic or do these things it's always important to make sure that you like look up what's actually being said and do some actual research and don't just believe everything everyone tells you at face value Absolutely. Especially those things that are reiterated, especially in the more sensationalized media, especially around like things like the trans bathroom panic, right? This is like a fear that has been reiterated and reiterated across like a number of news outlets, but statistically does not happen. Statistically, trans people are targeted in bathrooms and by and large are just like trying to use the facilities that they Mm -hmm. need to. Um, But the like rates of violence from trans people to other people in bathrooms is basically non-existent. Um, It is a fabricated sensationalized fear and it's debilitating in its impact. Well, everyone's worried that that uh, trans woman is just a man who's a pervert. That's the worry, mm-hmm. right? Like there's this conflation of there or not conflation. There's still those um, the stigma of if you are not, as you said, like a, a white cisgendered heterosexual person, there is some sort of deviancy inherent mm-hmm. with who you are. And so if you are a trans person using the bathroom, it's not because 
you just don't want to be attacked because you look like a woman going into a man's bathroom or a man mm-hmm. going into a woman's bathroom. It must be that you're secretly a pervert who wants to mm-hmm. get one over. And I'm sure that there are people who are secretly perverts who are using this entire discussion to their advantage. But that doesn't mean that we deny people rights. Mm-hmm. There are a lot of cisgender perverts mm-hmm. <laughs> who are using whatever facilities. And that happened long before the, any of the like trans discussion kind of entered the like public arena. Yeah. Absolutely. Do you think being trans affects kids who are younger than fifth grade? Because this article is talking about how you can't talk about these. You you can't talk about, you know, anything LGBTQ with anyone younger than fifth grade. Which is wild because we, you know, give children the like, you know, little like little romancer or whatever. And like all these like weirdly sexualized T-shirts. But as long as they're like heterosexual, that's fine. Um, But there was actually a great study that was done in 2017 uh, that interviewed preschoolers. So it interviewed like a number of different preschoolers, some of whom had, were cisgender and had like entirely cisgender family members, some of whom were cisgender and had transgender siblings or like friends, uh, and some of whom were trans, um, or were gender fluid or gender nonconforming in whatever way. Um, and all of them had pretty static ideas about their gender. So some of the like cis, uh, preschoolers said, you know, this is my gender and it's not going to change. And I don't know if gender can change. Uh, the cisgender ones who knew trans folks said like, oh yeah, gender can change, but like, I know what mine is and this is who I am. Um, and then the trans ones said like, yeah, gender can change, but like, this is who I've always been. And so I just had to like change my name and let people know. But we see that like, it actually remains quite static uh, as long as people have access to that language. We saw in like earlier studies, uh, with trans folks from like, you know, 20, like 2007, 2010 kind of land when some of this, more of this, um, discussion was kind of entering the public arena that more and more people were coming out and more and more people were coming out at an earlier age and claiming that like, you know, I knew when I was five, I knew when I was seven, I knew when I was 12. Um, but I didn't come out until much later, right? I work with people who haven't come out until like their late 70s, 80s, even 90s, and have opted to even transition at that age because they just didn't have the access to language or the perceived level of comfort and acceptance to do so. Uh, but with these preschoolers, they found that they knew who they were, even at age like three, age four, and that that remained pretty consistent after a longitudinal study. So generally, with like children and all people, I trust that people know themselves. And if we can give them the tools and the like language to describe their experiences, then we also get the, the opportunity to know them better and to like love them better for who they are, as opposed to trying to like force an agenda. And then everybody gets upset when that agenda isn't met. Yeah, I, I've, I don't remember the phrase, but it's something like with kids, they're usually consistent and persistent about their gender mm-hmm. identity. It's mm-hmm. not like, oh, this kid hits puberty and all of a sudden they're confused because of the hormones. This is someone who since before puberty has been consistent and persistently um saying that they are a boy or a girl or none mm-hmm. or either you know so yep. usually by the time a kid hits puberty there's already been the signals and the clues if if you're a family that has been looking for them exactly. not looking for them but like allows space for them to be expressed yeah exactly you've either noticed it or you haven't or you've looked away or you've actually like cultivated an atmosphere where they could come to you with that and so it doesn't come as such a shock and surprise yeah, but absolutely. Like I, I know a number of like, you know, my friends, kids and different kids that have like come to me through the work that I do, who are quite young and are like quite aware of their gender and how it shifts and how how they like know themselves to be and how they're able to describe that with greater nuance using different language as they learn it. But that their sense of self is unchanging. Their sense of their own gender is unchanging. And even I felt that way as a very small child, like even when I was like two or three, some of my earliest memories are around Feeling like not something's not quite right or like the way that I'm being treated is like not quite it. Um, mm-hmm. And so, yeah, that remained pretty consistent. Yeah. 
I remember being in high school and I absolutely hated everything that they told me that a woman was or that a girl was. A girl was weak. A girl was passive. A girl was small. A girl was a, a girls cried. And all of the things associated with femininity were things that I didn't want to be associated with, which was like fragility and frailness. And I was that girl that everyone was intimidated by in high school. And mm. um, and uh, and I hated that. That sucked. And a lot of that even starts in elementary school. Did you know that parents will, even without knowing it, they will show more emotional range and and talk with more emotional range to their daughters than they do their sons. Even Absolutely. Without meaning, even without meaning to. This is the kind of thing that starts as soon as you start assigning that, which is why, like, gender reveal parties are ridiculous. They're gender <laughs> reveal parties. It's so weird. <laughs> our boy is a penis. You know, our child is a penis. And therefore, it's a boy, you know. But yeah. it's amazing. Like, I wonder what, what things would be like if we genuinely didn't have these associations with gender that are so ingrained in us. Because even parents who are trying to raise kids equally without gender discrimination and without these like gendered assumptions we still mess up just because of the way that our our like we've all been conditioned yeah we've all been indoctrinated absolutely and the like the non-conscious bias is like so deep when it comes to gender right because it's something that we interact with every day but are very 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 rarely conscious of right it's not something that's like at the forefront of our mind unless you'd like do a lot of this work and even still there's a lot of implicit bias that comes through and that's something that's been really illuminating to me as i have transitioned because you know it's similar to you like growing up i was like oh that's not the kind of woman i am in fact i have maybe more questions (laughs) um and so i was fine being like outspoken i was fine being like really strong i was fine being like confrontational when i needed to be i was fine with being like really principled I was also fine with being a dyke for a while, right? Which like also transgresses a lot of those those boundaries or expectations of like what it means to be a woman. Um, and then I realized that like, oh, I'm not a woman. Um, but then as I transitioned, I also realized that the ways in which I'm received at, and perceived as a man, as like a masculine looking person are very different. Um, as I started to take testosterone, my because I was on a, a quite high dose, but a lot of folks who take testosterone have this experience that the ability to cry becomes less and less accessible, if accessible at all. And so I found that for the first three years of my transition, I wasn't able to cry at all. I like had significant losses in my life, really like difficult times, and I couldn't get the catharsis of that like sadness to come through. And so it just like stayed in my body in ways that like made me really irritable and frustrated. And then I, I had to develop new um, strategies for navigating like anger and like the ways that that like energy would stay in my body and didn't have these usual channels to move through for that catharsis. Um, but it also changed how people responded to me. Right. I could say like, I'm so sad. Like I, you know, I'm crying on the inside right now. It's just not like expressing on my face, but the way that people receive men's sadness or like the, the range of men's feelings is so limited. Um, one, because we like, don't know the nuance of which, uh, to which, how to like perceive that and what to look for if it's not as obvious and it's not as like demonstrated, um, but also, I think that we just like don't allow for a full range of men's emotions. We don't give them the same validity, um, especially around some of our like the the feminist discourse around like, you know, toxic masculinity and how shitty men can be sometimes. I think it really like dehumanizes men and makes men. It doesn't really give men a, a more generative way forward. Right. It doesn't give them another script to adhere to. It just yeah. says like as, as a result you're of your se- because you're a man. Yeah. As a result yeah. of your sex, like. You have no feelings. You have no ability to show up in these ways and like get out as opposed to saying like you could do better. It would probably be better for all of us. I uh, I don't know if you know this, but my sexuality coaching, my main demographic is straight men. 
So I work primarily with straight men in their late 20s to early 30s so far with the occasional dude in in their 50s. That's been since I opened up my coaching practice. I realized at first I was like, what's my niche? I'll work with men. I'll work with women. And then I'm like, no, I want to work with men for a few reasons. Um, I don't believe men are toxic. I have, yeah. I love men. Genuinely, men are- I am married to a man and I get to, <laughs> I can see the, the capability of all of these men. And every man that I, that I work with is usually very thoughtful and intelligent and like they are trying to improve things. They're not these selfish assholes, right? Um, yeah. Some of the men that I worked with that were older who were just unhappy in their marriages, they were so, they didn't want to pressure their wives into doing anything they didn't want to do. They didn't want to make their wives uncomfortable. They respected their wives. They saw, you know, they, they not their wives weren't on a pedestal or anything, but like they had a lot of respect for this person and their bodily autonomy. And there were some dynamics that meant that this person's individual sexual needs aren't being met. So mm-hmm. what I did is I was teaching these 50-year-old men how to communicate with their wives in a way that they would be heard because yeah. they had never learned these skills because and no that- one had ever bothered to give them the space or teach it to them. And I'm like, yeah. all right, let's do this. And I don't guarantee people that their wives are going to do everything. Like I never guarantee people lies. I'm not like you are for sure going to do this because I also understand that women are not games to win, mm-hmm. right? Like pe- people are people. And I'll also occasionally have men say things to me that are like, oh, I've heard that like women do this because they like to be manipulative and keep men on the hook. And I'm like, what fucking MRA group did you hear that from? (laughs) I'll literally be like, that is a human thing to do is to Mm -hmm. not be able to reconcile your feelings with your actions. That's what humans do, just Mm -hmm. like you did it here and you're doing it there. And so I just I love working with men because there's such a capacity for for growth. Mm -hmm. Um, that like when someone just takes the time to work with, with men as individuals, instead of this monolithic, like you're all monsters anyway, but once again, that's, that's the gender binary coming in. And occasionally I might even be too empathetic towards men now because I talk to so many as individuals and when men get together as a group, I think it's a very different dynamic than a man as an individual. Absolutely. And that's, I think where we end up with like toxic masculinity isn't like the individual guy just doing his best. It's like men in groups who don't know how to say this is bullshit and what you're saying is wrong. Yeah. And then it becomes the like comparison, right? And the like the the re reification of that cultural norm as a result of like being in that group and wanting to like establish kind of like your social positioning within a group as opposed to like being willing to disrupt that being the the one to disrupt that right because within toxic masculinity that is perceived as like a weakness they're like hey can we actually like talk explicitly about what's going on can we talk about our feelings can feelings even have a space here can my like full humanity even have a space here oftentimes no right and so how do we like invite men not only to like do that work for themselves because a lot of them want it right they want better ways of communicating they want to be taught these like new ways of relating because they recognize things aren't working um but how right and then, and then you that, get a university that will, yeah then you get a university that wants to start a men's group and the feminists on site are like like the feminist group is like this is concerning to us because most men's groups historically have been toxic masculinity groups but like it literally just reinforces that toxic masculinity when you don't create spaces for men to talk about their feelings in a space devoid of women Absolutely. Yeah. Which, of course, then is just once again, reinforcing that gender binary. But I think when it comes to unlearning our toxic, uh, like our our individual toxicity, men genuinely do need a space away from women to do that. Mm-hmm. Just as mm-hmm. like trans people need a space away from cisgendered people yeah. to, to, to like be with the people who you identify with and be able to learn in a space that you feel comfortable with. But we also need spaces for people to come together and learn from each other. Like yep. you can't just Absolutely. have one without the other, you know? Absolutely. Yeah.
Yeah. Anyway, I guess what I'm trying to say here is I'm not a gender traitor for working with men and believing that they are capable of being great people. <laughs> Likewise, you know. and I really appreciate you sharing that because that's something yeah. that I like bring forward a lot. And I'm like, I'm not, you know, I'm not like a men's rights activist, but I am like a men's wellness activist for sure. And I believe that like we really need to like invite some other schemas or some other ways for men to show up and just to like also be supporting men to show up better if we want them to show up better. And also addressing the like, you know, the women and the feminists among us who continue to uphold a lot of the like toxic masculinity that they claim to be against. Yeah. I also, um, now that I'm also thinking of this, every time I learn a statistic about like, that's part of the men's wellness movement, like, oh, men are more likely to die by suicide than women. And then you dig deeper into the like statistics, women actually attempt suicide more, but Mm -hmm. men are more successful because of the the models that they choose. They tend to be more aggressive. And I'm like, Mm -hmm. Well, that doesn't, that's just shitty for everybody. It's not like, we're, <laughs> Seems like, like everybody's just, unwell. <laughs> everybody's losing there. I just learned a new one recently, which is, you know how like primarily women get sole custody in a custody battle. It's not because women are winning. It's because men don't want it or apply for it. In most cases where men sue for custody, they get full custody, even if they were abusive. Wow. Yeah. There's like been new studies come out that show that like when men sue for custody, the women typically lose, even wow. if the man has been abusive. <sighs> that's depending devastating. on yeah and so in this case it's not oh women are winning custody and like this isn't fair it's like the men literally weren't weren't they weren't fighting for their kids and yeah. when they do they get them even if they shouldn't yeah apparently oh, okay mm-hmm. Apparently, which I'm just like, wow, once again, this just sucks for everybody. It's not like at this point, I'm not like, oh, this isn't like a women have it worse. Men have it worse. This is like, well, this just sucks for everyone. And let's be honest. We all know that in certain states, if you're gay or trans, you're definitely not getting custody no matter what. Yeah. Considering that there's still certain states that ban or organizations that ban gay parents from adopting in America. Mm -hmm. So. Anyway, this has been a, any last thoughts on this depressing topic? (laughs) Uh, I think it's been right, but I think, yeah, we can put it down. (laughs) All right. Should we go on to some other, shall we move on to our listener questions? Sure. Let's do it. We're going to take a short break and we'll be right back with the listener questions. This is your casual, super chill reminder that we have podcast swag. Do you want a hat that says fuck demon? We have those among other items. You can find them through sharewithray.com slash merch or head to my Etsy store, Send Nudes by Ray. Okay, we're back. I actually have two questions for you today. Normally I do one, but I'm doing two because two is more fun than one. So our first question is, on dating sites, when someone says in their profile that they are a queen, is that code for trans? Should trans people identify as trans on dating profiles? So that's like a two in one. Ooh. Am I just answering this or are we collabing on it? We can collab. I can take the first part, which is if they say they're a queen, that just means that they um, expect you to treat them as royalty and put them on a pedestal and they're looking for a king. Usually saying they're a queen also implies that they are into the gender binary, want to be treated in a certain way because they're a woman Mm -hmm. and expect you to behave in a certain way because you're a man. It has nothing to do with being trans. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I'm pretty sure. Yeah. Yeah. I think the only exception there would be like certain drag queens. But I think that that is like a, an expression of like a, a play around, around gender and with gender and can mean many things. But I agree. I think generally it's like, I want you to treat me this way. Um, and this is kind of what I'm subscribing to and the dynamic that I'm into. Yeah, but absolutely not synonymous with trans. No. OK, so should trans people identify as trans on a dating profile? I think it's up to trans people. Um, it really depends on like, you know, how 
prevalent is this for you? How prevalent is this for you in terms of like who you're seeking out? And are you even out? There are a lot of trans folks who decide not to be like as out about their orientation or their gender identity. And so we might call them stealth. And so they won't, would not disclose and they don't disclose publicly. Other people choose not to disclose publicly on their dating profiles and choose to like have that conversation at a later date. And then others are more explicit about it. So I think it really depends on each individual's personal preference around it. And I think that if you're like, you know, transphobic or really not into dating trans people, you should put that on your on your profile so that the rest of us can stay away. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm thinking in terms of some people are more private than others, and this is true of everyone. So um, some people, when it comes to having an STI like herpes, they put that on their dating profile and other people will wait till date number three. Yeah. Well, my herpes, you know what I mean? Like my herpes doesn't matter unless I'm going to have sex with you, right? Exactly. My transness doesn't matter unless we're going to actually get into a relationship and have sex with each other. But on a first or second date, does that even really matter? You don't even know if you like each other other yet exactly so that would be more my like okay well what is the information that is only necessary if you plan on actually having sex with this person and just make sure that you share that with them prior to that yeah it's like that delineation of like curious versus critical right in every every relationship the questions that you're asking like are you just curious about this and could you google it or is this like critical to your relationship if a coworker asks me if i'm trans or like aspects of my transness that might or may not be relevant. Whereas like if I'm about to go to bed with somebody, it might become increasingly relevant, right? Mm-hmm. And so at that point, we would have that discussion. Whereas also like uh, because of the kinds of work that I do and the kinds of roles that I play in community, like my trans identity is pretty salient. And so I need people to, I would prefer that people know that kind of upfront and are comfortable with that, right? Like I'm not still, I'm not discreet about it. And so if we are going to be involved, you're going to be around trans people quite publicly. And so you need to be fine with that. And so I often would kind of put that out front. Um, yeah. And yeah. also if someone puts that they're trans on their profile, they risk being objectified and, and yeah. fetishized a lot faster. Yep. Like the person's only talking to them because they're interested in their body and not their yep. personality. Yep. Um, and if that's the case, go on FetLife. Okay. Yeah. Let's just keep those conversations yeah. FetLife. Yeah. Get your chaser dreams out of here. This is not the place. <laughs> yeah. Like maybe not Tinder. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Or at least be like upfront about it. You know, I'm, I'm all for people getting what they need and what they want, as long as they're like open, clear and communicative about what that actually is and what their expectations are. Yeah. Um, I, I've never per- I mean, I'm sure I'm sure these people exist because people are everywhere, but I've never actually met a trans person who is genuinely offended if they go on a date with someone and the person's like, you're really great, but I'm just not feeling this, the sexual attraction or the vibe. And that mm-hmm. can be true. Like, you know, and it could be because the person's trans, but we're not sexually attracted to everyone we go on dates with, whether they're trans or not. So yep. if someone does go on a date with someone and it turns out they're trans and that's not what you're looking for, you don't need to say, I'm not interested because you're trans. You can just say, listen, I'm not feeling a romantic connection or I'm not feeling a sexual connection. You don't need yeah. to make it specifically about their body. That's, you know, it can be, but it doesn't need to be. And that's true of anyone. You go on a mm-hmm. date with someone who was maybe a bit of a catfish and now you're not as attracted to them as you were to their original picture. You don't need to say oh, you don't look like your picture, so I'm done with this. You can just say, like, listen, I'm not feeling a connection. You don't need to make it rude. Mm -hmm, Absolutely. And it also, like, creates a lot of nuance. I found that, like, myself with dating, it's fascinating looking the way that I do and that I look very typically masculine. I look, you know, in and around like a typical cis dude. Um, And so I do generally disclose my, like, trans identity and the fact that I am non-binary as a way to say, like, you know, like I'm not your like typical cis dude. Uh, and so it's been interesting to like folks that are drawn to me or that I am connecting with and that like some are, you know, very heterosexual and have only primarily dated like cis het people. Um, whereas I like am perceived as like, you know, it's in and around cis sometimes, but I'm like explicitly queer and have like been many of the letters of that acronym. Um, and so, yeah, finding finding ways to connect and how to like 
put that forth enough to find my people, but in a way that also like mitigates the ways that I look and am perceived um, and the assumptions therein coming back to our conversations, but like assumptions about like boring white dudes, you know? Yeah. What a fun time it was. I've, I've never been on a date with a trans guy, but I feel like it would be very fun to bitch about society on that entire date for the well we're pretty fine so if you want to go for coffee sometime (laughs) (laughs) we'll get back to you later yeah uh... (laughs) okay here is my second question for you which this one could be uh i feel like this could be fun if we maybe make it like a game where we just go back and forth oh my gosh Um, fun so this question comes to a listener what questions should i ask on speed dating Ooh. You want to go back and forth? Yeah. Okay. I would say this is my always my best opening question. Um, when you're not at work, what do you do for fun? Oh, that is a good one. Um, honestly, politics are pretty important to me. So I'd be like, what what is your like political outlook and like how are you involved in community building? Mm. Um, do you have a religious connection? And if so, what is it? Ooh. Or I would say religious or spiritual, because like if I'm on a if I'm at speed dating and this person's like I'm an atheist and then they believe in horoscopes, that is important information. <laughs> that <laughs> right, is important there are two different them. kinds of atheists, you know. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> absolutely. Yeah, I, I would echo the like kind of cosmologies question, but I won't like take that one from you. No, nah, you can uh, you can you can come up with your own version of it. That's oh fine. well, I'm like an intense astrology queer, so I ask right away like when is your birthday? What are your big three? <laughs> okay. <laughs> Um, so that would definitely be one. Um, I like to, I actually coach a lot of my clients. If you don't know what to talk about, you do to the, the five F's. So fun is one of them. So talking about hobbies, that's number one. Another mm-hmm. one would be something like, uh, when you and your friends get together, what are you doing? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. I would also ask like what they feel most passionate about in this moment. Mm, that's really good. Mm-hmm. Um, if you were to make a great change in the world over the course of your life, what would you want it to be? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I usually ask about like, you know, what kind of ancestor do you want to be? Ooh, that's cool. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. I'm showing sure that food, friends, family. Um, oh, this one's kind of boring, but um, all right. What's your connection to your family? Like, are you close with your parents? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Depending on the vibe, if I want to crack it open, I'll ask like what the best and worst date they've ever been on. Because uh, then you get to like see what excites them the most, but also like what their baseline for horror stories is. Mm-hmm. That's really good. Um, I would say something like, okay, food for uh, I mean, obviously you can't ask about work. I think on a speed dating event, you can ask about work because people want to know what you do for work. But mm-hmm. um, I find... For me personally, that's a really boring question because some people hate their job or <laughs> yeah. someone's an accountant or when you're like me and you work in sex education or for a while I was like, I'm like, I'm just a professional slut. Like I have an OnlyFans. I talk about sex online. I like work at a sex club. My husband hated when I called myself a professional slut. He hated that. He still does. I'm like, but, I am. Um, but yeah, because I'm not an escort or anything. I'm just professionally professional and slutty all the time. Yeah. All of my professions are related to my sluttiness. So <laughs> Um, but the problem then is that I would get uh, sexually objectified. So it was actually mm. a very good question to like sort of get rid of the people who objectified me. But at the same time, I ended up having the same fucking conversation over and over and over again. So uh, if you are going to ask someone about their job, I would rephrase it like, what do you do and what do you like about it? Nice one. Yeah. Yeah. I usually ask like, you know, what do you do for work or how do you fill your days or how do you how, what are the ways that you choose to give back? Right. Because then it's like you can speak about the work that you do or you can speak about like, you know, maybe volunteer work that you do or maybe you like make art. And that's like your true calling. And so kind of opening it up a little bit, because like, again, we should not be defined by like the things that we are paid to produce. 
Yeah. And then I think also the question is, um, are you active? It's kind of judgy, but like, what are the ways you, what are the ways in which you like to be active is a little bit different and also value-based because a lot of our questions are sort of like trying to figure out someone's values in less than a minute. So -hmm. if someone's like, oh, I'm not actually really that active. I I do this. Then like, that's, that's fine. Now, you know, but if someone is active, but they don't, someone might say, oh, I like to lift weights. And another person might say, I like to go dancing. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, so. Absolutely. Those those, like more broad, open-ended ones are always best. Yeah. And also just like asking what people are into, what they're looking for, right? Because a spade gaining, they might be looking for, and unless it's like a very curated pocket uh, of intention in terms of what the speed dating is about, finding out like, you know, why are you here? What are you looking for tonight? What are you looking for long term? What are you like open to? And what's your relationship style is a big one too, because that can also continue to change. Yeah. Oh, also like while we're at it, what's your love language? I I'm like. Oh yeah. Oh, I also um, I someone added on on a. Uh, fucking tiktok the other day someone sent me a tiktok and it was if the five love languages are things like gifts uh, acts of service um words of affirmation touch and there was another one this person said that like one of the love languages is to be seen so it doesn't matter mm. which one of the other love languages it is the idea is that you want to be seen so if you get a gift it's not that you like gifts it's that you like a gift that shows they were listening when you talked or yeah. the words of affirmation are speaking to the deepest part of yourself that that you need to be to have affirmed So I was like, that's really great. Some people just want presents. Other people want, (laughs) you know, like that's true. But I I think that's, yeah, I haven't heard that before. And I think that's really a beautiful grounding to the scaffolding around love language of like this, this idea that we all want to be seen, right? Because we all have these like fundamental needs that we're trying to be met through all of these either adaptive or maladaptive or previously adaptive and now kind of questionable strategies. And so what are the ways that we can actually like reflect that in the ways that we approach one another? And I think that that kind of leads into another question around like, you know, how do you deal with conflict? Are you able to deal with conflict? And then because a lot of the times when conflict escalates, it's because we're not feeling seen. And so noticing people's um, like love languages and being able to build off of that, if, you know, if these are the ways that you want to be seen and showed up for it, what are the ways that like I can continue to like reaffirm yourself with if conflict does emerge. Yeah. Okay. Just to flip this on its head a little bit. Questions you absolutely should not ask on speed dating. <laughs> I'm going to start. What's your childhood trauma? <laughs> uh, what would your therapist warn me about? <laughs> mm. um, what do you, what, how did your mom, you know, like, what do you hate about your mother? You know, <laughs> tell me, tell me everything that you're like, what is your, how does, how does your mom interacted with your past relationships? You know? <laughs> oh yeah. Uh, what would your ex say if I, Told them I was on a date with you right now. Um, if I told you to pull out your penis right now, would you? Ooh, that's one not to ask, right? Yeah, that's one not okay. to ask. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Maybe we're and on different apps. Show me your, show me your dick. Uh, no, yeah. Said no woman ever except for the ones who do. That's actually not true. Lots of women ask for dick pics. It's just the yeah. I was gonna say matters. also if you're like on Grinder, if you're oh man, every time I see men, it's- every time I see like women posting shit like no woman has ever asked for a dick pic. I'm like tons of women ask for dick pics. The problem the that's the difference though. We are asking for them. We don't yeah. want yours. Solicited. Yeah, solicited dick pics. Um, you, yeah, we met when I was selling art of dick pics at at Pride. So I am one of those women. Um, Okay. Other things that you should not ask on speed dating. I'm trying to think. Uh, I feel like uh, as a trans person, like body stuff, be like, have you had the surgeries? What is your, you know, asking specifics on speed dating feels no, that's second date or when it escalates. Um, What are your fetishes? Oh, don't ask those. Don't ask those on a first date oh, yeah, at a okay. speed dating event. 
Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. That to me goes back into, are you having sex with each other or not? Yeah. Um, yep. That matters when you're actually getting serious about, if you're sleeping with, even a one night stand, you're not getting into the heavy BDSM fetish stuff on a one night stand. And if you it's are, true. you have very poor boundaries. It's true. If your fetishes are a really serious, important part of your life, then they can come up because you want on, I would say like early dating before you're yeah. in a committed monogamous, if you're monogamous, before you're in a committed relationship, you should be bringing that up because if they're that important and this person just cannot, will not, is not willing to try, is not willing to do it with you, is not willing to let you do that with other people, you can't get into a relationship with that person. But yeah. um, one of the the people that I was DMing with who was like, I think I might need a dating coach. I'm looking to fulfill my fetishes. And the more I chatted with this person, the more they were like, well, I bring it up on the first date. And I'm like, and mm. how does that go for you? <laughs> and he basically responded with um, they either are like super interested in it and like kind of curious and ask a lot of follow up questions or they can be kind of judgmental. But either mm. way, he never hears back from them after. And I'm like, mm. even the curious ones, you've become a spectacle yeah. and you have shown that you have poor boundaries. So even though they were curious and interested and now you've taught them about this thing, you have just shown that you have poor boundaries and now they don't want to date you. Yeah. Yeah, so real. I feel like in early dating for me, I usually bring up the fact that I'm kinky. One, because like I, I have like a bit of a, a community reputation. So I feel like in a lot of cases, it's a bit of a given. Uh, and But I like to be upfront about it, but I don't usually get into like great detail about it. But I reiterate kind of my own approaches to it to say like, you know, I'm into like certain things, but very much predicated on like vastly informed consent, a lot of explicit communication and like building that trust over time that then like allows it to like naturally kind of evolve into whatever it will like be between us, right? As like a co-evolution. Yeah. Well, there's a very big difference. My best friend met her her current fiance on a dating app and she made it very clear like she was kinky. So did so did he and that's and how they ended up connecting. But they weren't like, here's a list of my fetishes. They just yeah. you know, like, yeah, I'm kinky looking for a kink person. Yeah. And and when you are going into great detail, it just comes off like you're trying to jerk off with this person. Yeah. Like if you're like on a first date, like I'm into, I'll give a la- an example because I'm a latex designer. So if if I, um, like you, I have many, I wear many hats. Um, <laughs> so if I was on a first date and I was with a guy who was like, oh, I'm also into latex. That's one thing we can talk about it. But the thing is, like, if there there's a lot of gatekeeping in the kink community, there's a lot of like gatekeeping around fetishes. So if this person is like, oh, my God, I love latex. I just love putting on all of my rubber and going home and jerking off in it and jerking off to pictures of people in latex and this and that. And you can see that they're getting a visible boner from talking to you. Mm-hmm. And it's like date number one. You're like, this is not this is yeah. not like this is a date. This is not we've met at a fetish event. We're not yeah. at a kink sphere. Like setting really matters. Yeah, I agree. And this I think it's not like- a munch. Yeah, delineating that like line between like shared interest and foreplay. Mm-hmm. Right, right, exactly. Is, is this like a shared interest that we're like, oh yeah, kink? I love the like the the opportunities that it includes to like yeah mutually explore one another and work through different like embodied you know sensations and trauma reactions and it can be really healing and therapeutic and like a different way to connect with each other or other people or whatever else as opposed to like. I'm hot for it and getting hot for it right now. It's yeah. very different. And vibe. now that's <laughs> and now and now I'm thinking with my dick instead of seeing you as a person. Yeah, exactly. We gotta overcome that think with your dick feeling if you're actually dating. If you're just dating to have sex, fine. That's that's none of this matters. But if you're at a speed dating event, I'm gonna assume that you are looking for a relationship. Yeah. Of some sort. In which case you wanna try and there needs to be a sexual connection. There needs to be sexual chemistry. If you're not asexual, that's very important. Mm-hmm. But you don't need to make that first date about sex because then you're not going to actually get to know this person and and you're missing out on opportunities with people you might connect with better. 
Absolutely. And then you can just get like caught up in the chemistry and not actually see one who they are as a person and kind of miss some of those red flags that serve for like, even your sexual chemistry might be incompatible because of the ways that you communicate because of the priorities that you have because of the parameters in your life. Absolutely. That's a great way of putting it. All right, you ready for the sex ed story of the week? I'm so ready. The day I lost my virginity has had one of the most long lasting effects on me. It all started after matching with a girl on Tinder. We started talking back and forth and eventually decided to have sex. She invited me over to do the deed one day. I was a nervous wreck, but she was comforting and reassuring. Even before engaging in foreplay, she looked at me and said, consent is everything as she gave her consent to begin. But she didn't ask for his. Those words have been ringing in my head for years, and I even hear them today before engaging in any sexual activity because she was right. Consent is everything. So my one comment here is it's interesting how much sex that is happening from partners and not in formal educational settings, Mm. which is why it's important that we should all be getting good sex ed. Absolutely. Because she learned it from somewhere. Mm -hmm. Exactly. I love that. I thought that was a very cute story. The person who shared this with me, their profile picture was them like fully encased in rubber too. So I was like, that's oh, very sweet. Beautiful. Yeah. I love that that's like been a maintaining <laughs> anchor yeah. for them. Yeah. Yeah. That's really beautiful. And it's fascinating because like, you know, the more that good consent is modeled for us, the easier it becomes. I feel like when you talk to people about consent initially, they're like, oh, that feels like awkward and jarring and like not sexy. And you're like, it can be so sexy. You just have to like learn what your sexy version of getting consent and active and ongoing consent is. Because, like, there's nothing hotter than a fuck yes. Yeah, exactly. And sometimes when you've been in a relationship for a really long time, it's like a sure why not. But then that sure why not turns into the fuck yes. Yeah, exactly. And being able to, like, navigate that and know that about one another is really powerful. Yeah. Well, thank you for listening, everybody. Jasper, where can people contact or follow you? Ooh, uh, you can find me at jasperalex.ca. Um, some of my work is described on there. Uh, you can also contact me at jasperalexsmith at gmail.com and doing a bunch of things in community. I do a, a lot of work with this clinic. I do a lot of work with our local pride organizations. I run my own organization. I do a lot of weird, fun workshops. So, Are you yeah. allowed to mention which clinic you work at? I don't think you mentioned the name. I don't know if that's something uh, you want to mention. It's Arch Clinic. Arch Clinic. Yeah. In so we have, like a, we have a trans health clinic. We do STI testing. Uh, we do care for people living with HIV. We do PEP and PrEP and anything else you might need. We've got some monkeypox vaccine clinics going on right now. So come on and get it. And <laughs> the vaccine, not the monkeypox. Yeah. 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 <laughs> All right. If you want to join the Deviants Defining Elite, I'll explain that to you after. You can join our communities by following us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter at Sex News with Ray. You can submit a listener question through the usual channels, the podcast website, the email. I'm not going to tell you again. You hear it every credit. Follow me at Wife Bay Ray on Instagram for Thirst Traps, Twitter and TikTok, and Razor Latex on Instagram and OnlyFans. And for more dating advice, follow me at Share with Ray. The podcast is engineered and produced by Josh Tenbrink and is hosted at sexnewswithray.podbean.com. And the theme music is by Blink and Brilliant. And our logo is by Dolly Shots Photography. 